this should not come as too much of a shock to you, but Valentine's Day is approaching. So, of course, that means, if I can put it this way, love is in the air. And it reminds me of something of a, of a silly little game that no few of us uh, played as we were children, and no doubt some of our children still play today involving you know, the little flower, and you're trying to figure out if the object of your affection is returning that same affection towards you. So, of course, the way the game is played, if you're a young lady, you're holding the flower, and you're saying to yourself, usually silently, he loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not. And you're plucking one of those flower petals, of course, with, with every one of these phrases. And the way, of course, certainty is to be found with the, you know, where the object of your affection is coming down on you uh, is with that, you know, what phrase is it that you land on with the plucking of that last petal. That game is a dangerous game to play. You're already uncertain, and it really doesn't matter, you know this, it really doesn't matter which petal you end up plucking with which phrase, because in any case, you're going to land on, I still don't know. I still just, I still don't know. It's a terrible thing. It's a terrible thing not to know where you stand in relationship with another person. It makes things really difficult. God has not left us to guess how he feels about us. He has not left us to guess or wonder how he feels towards us, towards you, towards you this morning. If you have a Bible, I'd ask you to turn with me to John chapter 3. To John chapter 3. We're not in Matthew, not this week and not next week. We're pulling out for just a couple weeks and kind of honing in on this theme of of love. In in John 3, you can see there on the screen, there's only one verse that we're, we're really boring in on here today. It's perhaps the most famous, oft quoted text in all 66 books of the Bible. I'm going to start with verse 1 in the reading of chapter 3. Uh, and, and there was some intentionality in not putting verses 1 through 15 on the screen because I want to do a little experiment here with you. I want you to close your Bible now. And I want you just to listen. This is how the first hearers of John's gospel would have encountered this. Not with it being read, you know, there in their lap but someone up front with a scroll, the Gospel of John in the late first century, being read to them in some sort of gathering, a house church, whatever it was, wherever it was. I just want you to hear. I just want you to, to, some of you may want to just close your eyes as as I read these verses. John 3, starting in verse 1, and then let that build to verse 16 This oh-so-familiar, perhaps even, can I say that this way, too-familiar passage. Hear now God's word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? 
Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And now the verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray for a moment. Oh, Lord, these are familiar words to our ears, but I fear not familiar truths to our hearts and minds. And it is borne out in our thoughts, our words, our lives, our worries anger, our fretting, our hesitations, our distrust of you, our dislike of one another, we hear these words and yet we don't. We pray that you would help us to truly hear these words, oft quoted, and rightly so, they say so much, oh, would you help us to hear so much this morning. We pray in your name, oh Lord Jesus, amen. Well, again, this time of year, it's hardly uncommon, perhaps some of you could even tell the story. Of a, of a wedding proposal, or a marriage proposal rather, you know, roughly around February 14th. So I came across this article this past week, and this is the headline, 10 over-the-top ways to propose and what they cost. So this is your public service announcement for the morning. Here you go. A professional photographer or videographer, $25 to $1,000. I don't know exactly what determines all that range, but it's kind of wide. A hot air balloon, $200 to $400 for a 60-minute private ride. The Jumbotron at a Major League Baseball game, uh, $50 to $2,500. I guess it's you know, based on the size of the text. I, I don't know. Uh, a Skyrider, $1,500 to $2,000. An airplane banner starting around $500. Musicians, $150 to $300 an hour for a soloist. A glass slipper from Disney World, $300. 
375 plus the cost of admission. Fireworks, 2,500 to 6,000. A flash mob, now that sounds fun, uh, around 2,000. And a mock movie trailer, if you can imagine that, right? right? Uh, around $5,000. Here's the question. Why go to all that trouble? Why to go to all that expense? Because you want to make an impression. You want to build a case. You want to convince this gal you're serious. And you want her to know how you feel. And so you're willing to go to great lengths to make it clear. My friends, it is abundantly clear, oh so clear, that God wants us to know how he feels towards us. He has spoken it and he has shown it. It is absolutely clear. He's gone to the greatest possible lengths to make this clear to our poor hearts. Now, the context of this text is worth noting. We read it just a few moments ago. I'm just going to highlight, just kind of give you a sense of the flow. What was it that we just heard? So you have this Jesus engaging in a conversation, a dialogue with this guy named Nicodemus. And the highlights of the conversation, of the subject matter, have to do with, one, the necessity of new birth, and two, the assurance of eternal life. That's verses 1 through 15. That then builds, sets the stage for this off-quoted verse there in verse 16, our text for this morning, because once you've heard or once you've read verses 1 through 15, a question begs to be asked. How is that possible? How in the world is this possible that you can speak of this new birth and this assurance of eternal life? How is that possible? And that's where verse 16 comes in. The scope, the scandal, the wonder of the greatness of God's love. The sheer greatness of his love is the answer to that question. How can this be? And God wants to, us to know. He wants us to know the greatness of his love. Again, this is an off-quoted verse. Maybe it's so well-known, it's you know, Super Bowl Sunday, right? So I don't doubt we're going to see it flash. If you look for it on the screen at some point today, you'll probably see it. You know, they're between the goalposts or in somebody's eye black or, or whatever. That's how, really, if you go back and trace the history of, of how we've come to know John 3.16, it's actually through sporting events over the last several decades. Well, whether we know the verse or don't, whether we're acquainted with it or not, God wants us to know the greatness of his love. And in three ways, three things that you can see in the text, it's there in your outline. This is where we're going. The first thing being, we can see the greatness of his love in its unimaginable reach. That's the first thing. Second, in its unspeakable cost. And thirdly, in its unsearchable riches. And those three things, they point us, they take us towards the wonder, the depth, the greatness of God's love for us. Let's look at these things now. One, two, three. First is unimaginable reach, the unimaginable reach of God's love. How far it goes, to whom it goes, how far it goes. Verse 16, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. Now, for Nicodemus, 
This would have been oh so surprising, oh so shocking for him. Uh, This is certainly at least speaking to a love for the nations, a a message, a good news, the gospel going forth to the nations. Now, for most of us, we're probably kind of like, well, of course. It's not just for one people, one couple. Well, not so, hold on, my friends, not so fast. That would not have been the assumption that Nicodemus had as a Jewish man in the first century. Just because of his preconceived ideas and his assumptions that he's bringing to the table. Now, what God had said from the very beginning, is this is what he had in mind, that through one nation, through one people, all peoples, all nations would be blessed through them. He had in mind to gather together in himself one family from all races, all cultures, all kinds of stories. That's what he had. That's what he'd said from the beginning, but sadly what had been heard. What had been heard by his people was something else. A fixation on the idea, which was true but misconstrued, of there being what it meant, the significance of there being the people through whom all this was to come. They were fixated on the idea of there being a chosen race, as though, well, your choice, right? There's something other than just sheer grace behind that. And that what that created was a, a, a position of, of, of pride and presumption and sort of an, of course he loves us. How could he not? We're Israel. A terrible posture, a terrible posture uh, for them to take. So this is a good, this is profound, surprising that Jesus is saying, "For God so loved the world, all the nations, all the cultures, all the races, all the peoples of the world." But it's not just that. There's more in, the, in this statement than just that, because when John, the Apostle John, in all his writings uses this word that we translate in the English as "the world," this is not a geographical reference. This is an ethical, moral, spiritual reference to fallen mankind, to you and me, the inhabitants of the world who are made up of nothing more and nothing less than rebels, fools, idolaters. If you keep reading through John 3, Jesus describes the people of the world, us, as those who hate the light and love the darkness. That's the world. And that's whom God loves. You see how shocking, how surprising this is then. Jesus wants us to understand. He wants Nicodemus to understand. He wants the first hearers, the first the readers still today to understand that we dare not draw a line when we understand who the world is between everybody else and us, as though it's two categories. No, it's one category. This is us. When Jesus says, for God so loved the world, there's a shock factor there. There's a surprise factor there. It's speaking to the unimaginable reach of God's love to the nations and to sinners. You see, God's love for you and for me, for us, is not nearly as limited as we think. It is far more expansive, far more expansive. For God so loved the world. This is part of what makes the good news so good. That he loves us, that he has put his affections upon us. It is an indiscriminate love. 
It is a gracious love. He's extending himself to you, to me this morning, saying, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, this is for you. His love is great. His love is that great. And it is so great, he wants us to know it. He wants us to know it. That's the first thing. The unimaginable reach. But that then takes us, as you just move through the verse, to its unspeakable cost. What it cost. What was demanded. What it took for that love to be so extended. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You can't hear that without immediately getting a sense of the eternal worth of what's being given. The eternal worth of what's being given. So to be sure, there is, to to say, this is the understatement of the age, to to say that there is a mystery in the Trinity uh, is not saying nearly enough. But I'll just stop put it that way. To say that there's mystery. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. We just professed it just a few minutes ago, you know, in the Apostles' Creed, the way it's broken up in those three sections. And Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is speaking of the second person of the Trinity, describing himself. The older translations say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten. More modern translations just say his, his only. Either way you go with it, The idea is meant to imply his special, beloved, only son. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The eternal worth, which then speaks to priceless value. For God, the Father, so loved the world that he gave. And that, 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 the wording, just that, you just think in terms of what's, what's going on with that. It implies his submitting, his yielding, his offering, his sacrificing something of eternal worth and priceless value. He gave his only son. Now, Nicodemus, being the man that he was, knew his Old Testament. And surely at this moment, a historical memory, an echo from Genesis is triggered. Genesis 22, where Abraham's faith was put to the test, an excruciating test, where the Lord called him to go to Mount Moriah, which actually is Jerusalem, that hill that that was built upon, to go to Mount Moriah and there to make a sacrifice, a burnt offering. His son, Isaac, his beloved son, Isaac, there to sacrifice him, burn him as an offering on Mount Moriah. It was a horrific, again, excruciating test But the angel of the Lord stayed Abraham's hand, and another was sacrificed 
in the place of Isaac, a ram, caught in the horns, caught in the thicket. But here's the thing. For the son of Abraham, his hand was stayed. Not for the son of God. And that was meant as a foreshadowing to point for centuries towards what was coming, to lay the groundwork for who was coming. The ram, the ram, the sacrifice, Jesus, who would die at Mount Moriah for our sake, for our sin. This is the unspeakable cost, eternal worth and priceless value. All of which to say, again, I could say so much, but I'm just going to put it this so simply, so, so, so simply. My friend, you have no reason to wonder this morning if God loves you. You don't. Whatever else is going on in your life, look at this, hear this. There is no reason fundamentally, right down to the ground, to really wonder. You may wonder what he's doing in your life. Okay, that's a fair question. But not whether he loves you. Not whether he loves you. The cost could not have been higher. His love cannot be greater. Let that salve your wounds. Let that settle down into your bones and set the brokenness of your worries and your fears and your wonderings. Where do I stand with him? Yes, he loves you. He loves you so. He loves you so. For God so loved the world, even us, despite us. He loved the world that he gave his only son. And that then takes us to the third and final point, his unsearch- these, uh, the unsearchable riches of his love. What it is that is now ours, what it is that can be ours, what it is that he is holding forth in the fullness of this love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is the greatest of hopes. Eternal life. What is John speaking of here? Certainly quantity of life, if you want to think out in terms of out over that horizon, never ending, never ending, or put it more, that's glass half empty, glass half full, everlasting, out over the horizon, forever it goes, eternal life. But when John uses that term, he doesn't just mean uh, longevity in that sense of eternity or just quantity, but he's speaking to quality ever-deepening, not just everlasting, but ever-deepening life. Life as it's meant to be. Life, a knowing, a sharing, a participating, an entering into relationship with God himself. Coming into tasting now, on the ground, today. Not waiting till tomorrow, today. Tasting something of the age to come now. Eternal life. That's what John's speaking of here is held forth for any who would believe. Okay, so the greatest hope, 
which then takes us to the simplest means. How? How? How can it be? For the very simplest of means. Whoever, did you catch this? Whoever believes in him. Whoever believes in him through faith. Through faith alone. Accepting. Relying upon. Trusting in something that someone else has done for you. Now, by the way, did you note that's not a, just a naked, raw, oh, just faith. Just believe, and it's okay. No. This is faith. This is belief with an object. Jesus. Jesus and his finished work on our behalf. Whoever believes in him. Whoever believes in him. Now, again, I mentioned Nicodemus' historical memory. Something is triggered in him because of what Jesus is saying and how he's saying it. Surely there's another trigger here. There's another trigger here, not just back to Genesis, but to Numbers. Numbers 21. I'm not going to read it. But if you go back and you read verses 14 and 15 that sets up everything in verse 16, that's what that's hearkening back to, an incident, a historical incident in Israel's history, Numbers 21. Let's just look at verses 14 and 15 again here in John 3. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Again, back in Numbers 21, this is what's going on. The people of Israel, as they're being brought out, it's the context of the Exodus, so they're being brought out of enslavement uh, for those, those centuries there in Egypt, brought out, being sent eventually, eventually in their wilderness wanderings into the promised land. Early on, they begin to complain. They begin to protest against God's care and Moses' leadership. Ah, manna. We're tired of the manna. It was so much better back. Selective memory. And so God sends these venomous serpents into the camp. And scores of the people are, are bitten, struck, and die. The people cry out, recognizing what it is that they have done and the foolishness, the rebelliousness of their hearts. And they cry out, take them away. And so the Lord tells Moses, it's amazing, astonishing what he does. He says, Moses, craft a bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, and then tell the people, if you will but look to that, you will be healed. And that's exactly what happens. That's exactly what happens. Which, of course, is, is, is a picture, all of this is a picture of our plight, the plight of every single one of us, not just those people there in their wilderness wanderings, but ours. Our plight and our sole hope. Our plight and our sole hope, but to look, to look to one that is being hung. This is the unsearchable riches unsearchable riches, the greatest hope that is the simplest of means. Just look unto him. Turn to him. Rely upon him. Trust in him. Believe in him. Now, it would not be honest if we didn't just say straight up, just go right into the teeth of this. Yes, there is a sense of exclusivity here. Absolutely so. 
What Moses was saying to the people is you have to look to that in order to be saved. Not look to yourself or anything else. You have to look to that in order to be saved. What Jesus is saying is that we have to look to him. We have to look to him, not to anything, not to anyone else. No other path, no other way, no other hope. We have to look to him. The simplest means of faith and hope and trust in him is the only way to the greatest hope. We must be honest about the element of exclusivity here, but we must also follow that by noting the inclusivity here. Did you notice this? Whoever looks, whoever believes, whoever looks, whoever believes. My friends, that is far more free. That is far more open than any other religion that this world has ever known, any other path to God. All other ways, all other paths demand that you do something, that you get your act together. It demands certain acts, it demands certain works, it demands certain sacrifices. In this case, when it comes to the gospel, what Jesus is making so abundantly clear of himself for our sake is... All those works, all those things have been done by me. You have but to turn and trust in me. This is the greatness of God's love for us. The greatness of his love that he wants us to know. The unimaginable reach, the unspeakable cost, the unsearchable riches. And this is so, when you had to have been just so shocking, so surprising to Nicodemus. You can hear that in the dialogue in John 3. He's like, how can this be? How can this be? How can this be? He, it, it. It's hard for us to believe, too, if we're honest. If we're honest. But this is agape love. The strongest, most noblest of all that's being described here. This is not a love that is a matter of, of, of mere feeling or whims or infatuation. And however much you and I may struggle to believe this this morning, to the extent that we will, can have a powerful, transformative effect on our lives. I'll read you a little magazine excerpt, something I came across just a few days ago. I know a family who adopted an older child from an unspeakably horrific orphanage in another country. When they brought her home, one of the things they told her was that she expected to, was expected to clean her room every day. When she heard about that responsibility, she fixated on it and saw it as a way she could earn her family's love. In other words, she isolated the responsibility and applied it to her existing frame of thinking that was shaped by life in the orphanage. Thus, every morning when her parents came in her room, it was immaculate, and she would sit on the bed and would say, my room is clean. Can I stay? Do you love me still? Her words broke her new parents' hearts. Eventually, the girl learned to hear her parents' words as their unconditionally beloved child who would never be forsaken, not as a visitor trying to earn her place in the family. She began to know her inseparable part of the family story, and her life was never the same after that. My friends, there's no question in my mind that for 
all of us in this room, we are far too much, far too often like this once orphan girl in the way we think of our standing with our Father. And He wants you to know. He wants you to know the greatness of His love. And it will change your life. Let's pray. Oh, would you help us to know this love. Father, we say that, acknowledging that in many ways this morning we are like blind beggars on the street, unable to see the bright sun in the sky. It's right there, and we can't see. We are like the deaf man or woman standing in an orchestra hall in the middle of a beautiful symphony with no ability to hear. Oh, would you give us eyes to see and ears with which to hear that no area of our lives would be hidden by the love of God for us. May the light of your love shine into us and through us in more ways than we've ever known. We pray in your name. Amen.